Welcome to The Work of Art. I'm Ted Weinstein. The Work of Art is a series of conversations with some of the world's leading writers, musicians, photographers, artists, and others discussing their creative process and their creative lives. Today's guest is painter Alexa Mead. While she works with traditional brushes and paints, the rest of her artistic process is a bit more unusual. She paints portraits on her human models and the setting she puts them in, taking a three-dimensional scene and making it look like a two-dimensional painting. She's based in LA, gives lectures, and has done residencies and exhibitions across the United States and Europe. And today she joins me here in San Francisco for an in-person conversation. Uh, Alexa, thanks very much for being here. Thank you so much for having me. You've said that the genesis of this style of painting for you was thinking about the idea of shadows. What does that mean? When I was um, studying political science at Vassar College, I took a class in sculpture on the side, and my professor gave us an assignment, and we were supposed to make a sculpture of a landscape that wasn't a sculpture of a landscape. It didn't make any sense to me, and I came up with this idea of um, taking the shadows as they existed in the world, and what if I put black paint on them? What would that then look like? I proposed this idea to my sculpture professor. He hated it. Um, instead, I ended up making a cardboard sculpture of a house, um, which got a good grade. But I felt like that wasn't the art that was supposed to come out of me. Um, so I played with this idea in my head for a long time before I finally executed it months later. And I decided I wanted to know what it looked like if I put black paint on a person where the shadows were. And in so doing, I realized that it did interesting things with space, where it made the three-dimensional space appear like a two-dimensional painting if I captured the light in my brush strokes in a certain way. And so upon discovering this, I decided to further investigate and see what else I could find in shadows. How long ago was this? This was in 2008 that I first had the seed of the idea, and 2009 when I first executed. So you've been doing this for a while. How, as you've experimented with it, how has it changed the style as well as the nuts and bolts of it? I've had a lot of fun playing with different styles. I mean, at first it was very um, kind of traditional thick brushstrokes, and then it's been turning into playing with street art and more abstraction. And I realize that I can, I have yet to find a particular style of two-dimensional artwork that um, I can't make convincingly in 3D appear 2D. So whether it's collage or graphite drawing or chalkboard, I've been dabbling in all sorts of media with that. Most folks are going the other direction, trying to give the illusion of more media, uh, sorry, more dimensions, and you're going the other direction. Um, can you imagine compressing even further, or is this the right model for you? Well, I'm actually an um, artist in residence at this place called the Perimeter Institute for Theoretical Physics, um, and I've been working with researchers studying space-time and um, higher dimensionality. And they're not necessarily looking to have me compress four dimensions into three dimensions using my style of painting, but to just try to have a dialogue with them, wrap my head around what compressing dimensions means and seeing if something could come out of it. Um, we don't necessarily expect the results to have to do with paint and paintings, but um, we're open to seeing whatever shape that could take. By definition, any art form has the fourth dimension of time involved. Some of these paintings take days for you to prepare even before the model sits down. Um, how much time does it take for an average painting or installation? 
Um, I first want to say, you know, there's always the dimension of time added. Um, but when you're talking about four dimensions in that way, you mean three dimensions of space plus the dimension of time. So with um, the Perimeter Institute, we're talking about having perhaps four dimensions of space, five dimensions of space, and then you could add on top of that a dimension of time. And so it's more than just um, taking my typical performance and counting that as a fourth dimension. I'm painting physically on people, and so I have to accommodate their um, you know, own body needs. They might need to go to the bathroom, they might need to eat, they might need to sleep at some point. And so my painting sessions are really restricted to the time that the model can hang out with me in my studio. Um, before the day of painting the model's skin and face and taking the photos, I might spend about 40 hours on an art installation, painting the background, the chairs, the clothes, and doing everything I can in advance. Your style was, I would say, maybe rough isn't the right word, maybe expressionistic as opposed to very hyper-realistic and precise. Uh, is that because of the odd textures of an actual human, or it's just the style of painting that you respond to? I love that you picked up on that, and there's actually a really good reason um, why I use blockier brushstrokes. Um, a lot of it has to do with maintaining the illusion. When um, things are painted in a way in which they don't look real, it's easier for your brain to see it as something unreal. When it's painted very realistically, smooth brushstrokes, it looks more like um, reality coated in a layer of paint. So if I paint a person with skin-colored paint and I capture the shadows very subtly and smoothly, it might end up actually looking more like a drag queen or someone wearing heavy makeup. It no longer holds the illusion as strongly. That's probably related to the uncanny valley in creating robots. That's exactly it. I was going to bring that up. So um, the closer I try to get to making it perfect, the creepier it gets. It feels uncomfortable and um, it doesn't make as much of an aesthetic punch. Creepy can be fun, though. Creepy can be fun. Um, it's, I have yet to find the right mix of creepiness and uh, fine art. These models have to sit for how long for you to paint somebody fully? Is it an hour? Is it all day? I typically have the clothes painted in advance, and so when the model comes in, I'm just painting on their face, their hands, and that part could be as fast as one hour. Um, and then I take photos, and that's probably 30 minutes. But if I'm painting somebody full body, um, wearing clothes that I have to paint all in that day, it could be a seven-hour day. I did actually paint a full-body nude of a morbidly obese man, and um, there was a lot of surface area to cover, um, but it was only four hours. He has his own folds, which probably makes it easier to find the shadows. I, you know, I really appreciated his body and body type. It made for a really beautiful painting. Absolutely. And I loved it, too, as, like, not a typical body that you would see celebrated. You used a word a little while ago about performance, and I'm curious, what is the work of art here? You've got the literally the performance of what you're doing. You've got that moment in time when you're completed. Uh, you've got photographic representations of it. Which of these is the work of art? And then also important for any artist, which of these can you make money on? Well, the work is really at the intersection of all these places, you know, sculpture, performance, photography, painting, and you could try to make it one of those categories, but it's really at the intersection. Um, to say that's just painting 
takes away this idea that it's actually about space and about performance and time. The easiest way for people to describe it is in the genre of painting, but I really see it as among um, all the disciplines listed. In terms of making money off of it, um, I exhibit my limited edition photo prints in galleries and I sell those to art collectors. I do commission portraits where people pay me to paint them, and so that's in part about the experience of it. And then I'll do live events where it's more like a performance, uh, where people can come by and see the whole painted three-dimensional installation and take photos. And what's really neat about doing it live is that everyone who comes in with a camera, whether it's on their cell phone or a DSLR, when they take a picture of the work, they've created their own artwork. They framed it in their own unique compositional way, and they walk away with a piece of art. So an example would be the recent event at the Exploratorium. Yeah, the Exploratorium, I think there was something like 4,000 or more people there. And so there are a lot of photos taken. And um, while I might take some of the photos, what makes my photos more valid than somebody else who's walking by and is finding their moment in there that captures it for them. We're in an era of contested art in the sense that there are some artists trying to restrict others taking pictures of their work, uh, whether it's uh, Janet Jackson or Taylor Swift with their restrictions on concert photography, or artists like yourself who are really rigorous about not letting anyone take a photo anywhere near what they're doing. You don't seem to mind other people taking a photo that might almost be identical to one that you shot. When I first entered into the fine art world in 2009, or actually I think it was in 2010 that I first started really exhibiting. My gallery was um, very adamant that no one should be allowed to take photos but me. Um, and there are some good reasons for that. One is that once someone takes a picture themselves, they technically own copyright on it. It doesn't matter that I created this painting and the subject matter, they own the photo. Um, and they also were worried about what if people photograph it and it doesn't portray the image that the gallery wants to maintain of exclusivity and this is something that's very special and unique to this one person, the artist. But I think it's really beautiful to give other people the opportunity to experience art and give them that flash of creativity and wanting to make something. And publicity is publicity. That uh, Cory Doctorow has said famously that your enemy is not piracy, your enemy is obscurity. Oh, that's really interesting. In, when I first started exhibiting in galleries in 2010, uh, social media wasn't as big of a thing as it is right now. And my gallery wanted me to delete my Facebook page and make sure that my artwork only existed on the gallery's website. They didn't even like me having my own website with my artwork and my bio and my personal information on it because they wanted to create this very manicured uh, image of what the art was that a collector would invest in. But I found that my work, appear, my work appears to a large demographic of people. And to just limit it to those who have the money to collect art takes away a lot of its social utility. I mean, people like finding it on blogs and all these other places that the gallery would have never wanted to see it. And folks in traditional media often don't understand the marketing opportunities in new media. Um, in my business, the books world, uh, I remember years ago I sold a book to, I won't name the publisher, uh, but it was based on a website. And the first thing they did after signing the contract was say, great, now take the website down. Wow. 
and we had, uh, I don't normally yell, and that was one of the few times I've raised my voice in a professional setting because they just did not understand. And eventually we negotiated a settlement where about half the material could stay up. And of course, it was a great publicity for the actual physical book. And now everybody uh, in publishing can't wait to buy the most recent uh, viral video uh, star or uh, website um, or post that went viral. But uh, initially, and it sounds like the same in the gallery world, folks just don't get it at first. Yeah. And it took me a while to realize, too, the power of um, new media new media over traditional media. I was really excited a couple years ago when the Today Show wanted to do a segment on my artwork. And I was like, this is going to be my big break. This is going to be great. The piece aired. It was on for several minutes in front of millions of people. And I only got like five emails of people who had seen it. And I knew people had seen it, and I'm sure it had left some sort of impression. But I guess while people are watching TV, maybe they're not simultaneously browsing my website and sending me an email. Whereas my artwork appeared on Slate.com, and like within minutes of it going up, I had thousands of emails, literally in the thousands. It, it provides so much more accessibility to the artist when people are already on their computers, they click on my link, they find my email address, and it allows for more dialogue to happen that way. How do you manage that? Uh, I have a number of clients who are real touchstones for creative people, like Austin Kleon and El Luna and Jessica Hagee and others. And they struggle to keep up with what is inbound in terms of pure just fan celebration, but also folks asking for advice and wanting to connect. How do you manage that so it doesn't detract from the work you want to do every day? It's really hard if I'm constantly keeping um, an eye on how many likes my posts get or like, am I getting more fan mail this week or is it dying down? Because it really affects my confidence as an artist. I don't want my ego to get too big, but I also don't want to feel like, oh my God, maybe they don't like what I just put out. Um, so I try to like maintain my clarity in the studio and just create things that speak to my heart. But it's also really important that these people are reaching out to me and I want to be able to reach back out to them. Um, I only answer email a couple days a week. I'll go days without opening my laptop. Otherwise I get distracted and sucked into that world. So in the meantime, I actually have an assistant who goes through my email and sorts it so that um, when I do open my laptop, people aren't angry that I've gone five days without touching base. You come out of the political world originally um, and have made this switch to the artistic world, but it sounds a little bit like some of these elements are the same. You get asked a lot of the same questions repeatedly by people like me and others. You've obviously got um, some well-thought-out answers. Does it feel like you have a stump speech? How do you keep it fresh for yourself when you talk about your work? That is such a good question, and you're the first person to have asked that. So thank you for asking a fresh question in which I do not have a scripted answer to. Today's victory. Yeah. Um, it's interesting to see that like when people see my art, they have like an immediate reaction and they think, oh my God, how did you come up with that idea? And a lot of people have um, similar questions and I'm glad that I can provide answers to them. But it does at times get repetitive. Um, you know, everyone wants to know how long does it take to be painted? How do I find my models? And I actually try to, in most cases, when I respond to those questions, use different words than in previous times I've responded. I mean, it's the same gist of the answer because it's all based upon the same thing. But I don't want it to sound like I'm um, just like going into autopilot mode because I want to feel that connection with my art. More important than how you communicate about it is keeping the art itself fresh for you. Um, what other types of art have you been experimenting with lately and what are you going to... Is, 
is this style of painting something you're going to continue with? There's so much uh, richness for me still to explore in the style of painting. I'm really excited about new ideas in it, um, which maybe I shouldn't get too much into right now. But one of the things that I do to keep me motivated is to um, set up a lot of small projects for myself to keep myself limber. Uh, Every morning before my boyfriend goes to work, I draw a little doodle on a napkin that I put in his lunch bag. And it's a fun challenge because I have to every day come up with something original to show my love and hopes for him having a good day. So small things like that. But then also I'm working on some other side projects. I'm turning my house into a fun house with my boyfriend. Uh, My boyfriend, Chris Hughes, has been an amazing collaborator in building all sorts of fun stuff with me. I'm also working on some children's toys. I'm collaborating with one of the um, co-inventors of Tickle Me Elmo on one of the toys. And then I'm also collaborating with him on a children's book. When you say turning your house into a fun house, is that going to be something that we all can visit at some point in the future, or is this solely for your own fun and pleasure? The fun house is really the place where I work out a lot of creative problem solving. I don't so much create it for an external audience as just I get a kick out of it and I want to see what something would look like in the world and why not do it in my own space. I feel a little bit torn about it because it's getting to be actually really cool and I want to share it with the broader world, but my house isn't zoned as a commercial space. I can't, you know, like knock down the house next to mine and put in a parking lot. And um, I do actually have a gift shop in my house. It's in the medicine cabinet of the bathroom. And that's the last thing I show people as they exit. So they exit through the gift shop. Uh, And also I don't own my house, I'm renting it. And my landlords have been very generous in allowing me to staple gun things all over the place. But if they need to kick me out, it could be taken down in a couple of weeks. And worst case, it's like uh, anybody has to repaint if they paint their room, uh, house an odd color. Just return it to its original upright position before you leave. So it'll just be a lot of work for you. Yeah. I mean, I'll just have to paint over all sorts of rainbows. How is it? working professionally and artistically with somebody you're romantically involved with. Um, That could be dangerous, fraught, awkward, or uh, an extra level of positivity. What what is it for you two at this stage? We actually first started our courtship through the process of building things in my house. I wasn't interested in this guy at all. And I asked him as a friend, you know, would you be interested in helping me set up a system of mirrors so that one looked while I'm lying in bed, I'm able to see out of every window in the house at the same time. And I thought this project would take one afternoon, but we didn't finish it that day. So we came back the next day and then the next day. And we kept on adding to the complexity of this, putting the mirrors now on hinges on the wall and then putting decorative trim around the window, sorry, around the mirrors and then painting the decorative trim around the windows. And it turned into something much larger than we'd initially anticipated. And then once that project was completely done, This guy, his name's Chris Hughes, and now my boyfriend, insisted on maybe redoing my shower and working on my electrical. And he kept on finding ways to uh, keep coming back every day (laughs) to do something in the house. And finally, actually, after two months of him trying really hard, carrying a stove up a flight of stairs and all, I gave in and realized maybe I did like him a little bit. So guys, this is your lesson. Be handy and be helpful. Exactly. Nice to know. Nice to know. Good example for all of us. Um, when you talk about turning your house into a museum and not quite zoned right, have you? I assume you've been to the Museum of Jurassic Technology in L.A.? Oh, I love it. 
It's amazing. That that is a very personal project, but that's one where he found a way to leave it, uh, make it permanent and make it available to the broader public. If you lose your place and obviously can't build a parking lot next door, are you documenting this work in ways that could become part of a public exhibit? I've had a bunch of photographers like beg me to do photo shoots in there, so we've done a couple of them. And I have a friend who's making a short film about my relationship with Chris and how building the funhouse has turned into this like great expression of love for each other. Uh, the filmmaker is named Nirvan Mullick, and he recently made the short film Kane's Arcade, which is about a kid who turns his father's auto body shop into an arcade using cardboard boxes. A great story and a great uh, portrayal of it in that film. Yeah, Nirvan's really talented. Yeah. What in the Los Angeles art world do you find yourself responding to? It's uh, arguably the most wide-ranging explosive art community in America, even more so than New York or the Bay Area. What's the stuff that's grabbed your attention lately down there? Well, there's, you know, the new museum, the Broad, but I'm, I'm definitely interested in what the big art institutions are doing and the galleries, but I'm also interested in just, like, the scene on the streets. I wouldn't necessarily even call it street art, but I would call it the energy and atmosphere in the air, where anyone could do anything here. You can make a mess, and unlike San Francisco or New York, it feels like you could leave your mark in a really unique way. One of the challenges I have as somebody just admiring other people's art is that so much is now moving to video. Even on Instagram now, it's a 15-second video uh, opportunity instead of just a still that you could scan at a second or two. And I find myself, one, running out of time to absorb all of this, and then two, uh, in an interesting way, the artist is forcing me to spend a certain amount of time with their work instead of leaving that choice up to me. In documenting your work and participating in your own work, uh, is that notion of time and uh, video something you want to do more of, or do you like the still expression of something that the viewer can choose to look at for as long or as short as they want? That is such a well-thought-out question. I have traditionally displayed my work as still images. I might have a before and an after image to help somebody who's encountering my work for the first time really be able to see the illusion, to see that that is a real person covered in paint sitting there. It's not Photoshop. It's this three-dimensional space. I've started experimenting more with just little 15-second videos on Instagram as a way of communicating that by allowing the models to come to life or having um, things happen in the scene that reveal the illusion. And I think that's really valuable because you can see a still photo and think you get it, but it's just a completely different experience to see it more as it would be as a performance. Performance, that's a word that keeps coming up in a lot of different settings. The notion of uh, the traditional venues, here's a proscenium stage theater, seems to have been completely blown apart in our era. Uh, and now even something as simple and small as Instagram becomes a performance. That's an odd, uh, an odd new model. Uh, when you're looking at new venues and new media, what's uh, where are you really going to be experimenting once you've gotten bored with redoing your own house? I am talking a little bit with people in the virtual reality world because there's something interesting about VR where you don't necessarily have a fixed vantage point. And in my artwork, when you see it in real life, unlike a static two-dimensional painting, the viewer can move around the three-dimensional space. They can capture the art from many different directions. And so there's people in the VR space who are really interested in how 
my artwork could um, really show off their technology, that you can have this art experience in there and that you're the one creating the different angles of the painting. There was a demonstration of some of the new VR gear at an event here in San Francisco called Nerd Night recently. And the guys who were explaining it were saying that one of the real risks or challenges is you can get really nauseous if your body and your inner ear is not moving in the same way your eyes think you're moving. I've um, experienced that. <laughs> what was that like? You know, I try to cognitively tell myself, like, don't get nauseous. Like, this is fine. You know, you can trick your brain out of it, but you can't really. I mean, it's like biology. I don't know. There's so many things in VR that just absolutely fascinate me. Like, how do you direct a viewer's gaze into one particular area when you're going to get some people who want to just be rebellious and turn their head the other way? Like, how do you draw them back into the experience you're trying to create? Or do you let it be freeform and have them completely dictate their own experience and ignore an idea of narrative that maybe builds sequentially? Maybe there are some lessons from the traditional theater world. Oh, interesting. Because a director and a lighting designer particularly, but obviously everybody else who's involved in a work, are trying to focus the uh, audience's eyes in one place. Now there you know where the audience is because they're all in their seats, but uh, as opposed to wandering around on stage. But there are some theater pieces where literally the audience is wandering around on stage and you have to figure out a way to draw their attention. So maybe the old world has something to teach the new? That's fascinating. I've actually been really inspired by... Um, dead media and in particular things before um you know digital maybe even slightly before analog i don't, I don't know if that counts as before analog but i'm really interested in camera obscura if you have a darkened chamber and you have a little hole in the wall and allows light to come through things in the outside world then become projected through the hole and um appear inside the darkened room as if it's like a movie of what's happening in the real world Making a live camera obscura, my limited understanding of the form is that it takes a long time for enough light to get through for you to see it. It takes a long time for your eyes to adjust to the dimness in the room and of the image. I've actually been playing with magnifying glasses, which will sharpen the image and make it appear brighter, and um, using prisms to flip it right side up because the light that gets projected through makes the outside world look flipped upside down. So you're going to have your audience standing on their heads. <laughs> well, actually, in the beginning of the show, the idea was that the actors outside would be standing on their heads so that they appear to be right side up, and then they step down, and then you're like, wait, what? How are they walking on the ceiling? And then um, I use a prism to flip the world back right side up. Who are the individual artists that, in addition to the ones you're collaborating with, that you just follow almost everything they do because they're doing interesting things? I really like JR's work. Uh, his work with portraiture and putting faces. He's the French photographer. Yes, um, in interesting places. And I've visited his studio in Paris, and it was, like, really inspiring to see how he was working. And I hope to someday do a collaboration with him. He's intent on working with audiences. Uh, his work in the favelas in Rio, obviously, and elsewhere. Um, how, in addition to using individuals as subjects, your models, whether they're paying or not for the privilege, uh, are you looking at other ways to involve audiences more directly in your work? It takes a lot of work to paint the background and the clothes of pieces, and I've realized that uh, I, can, I can involve the audience in that part of the process if they want to do some of the painting. And I can instruct them, okay, you know, first with a roller, paint this whole wall red, and then after that I might you know, 
give further instructions, but it's really fun to involve a lot of people in the process and see how it organically comes together. And when I'm talking about people, I mean, I'm also including young kids. I had um, at the Exploratorium, a bunch of nine-year-olds come and help me paint. One of them actually got written up in his local like Santa Clarita newspaper for his involvement in helping create the piece of the Exploratorium. So you're Tom Sawyer getting the fence painted. I suppose so, yeah. Lots of kids. <laughs> um, yeah, and then for my show at the Pinacotech Museum in Paris, I let people who can come to the show actually come in and um, paint there inside the museum with me. Today's guest has been artist Alexa Mead, best known for her two-dimensional paintings on three-dimensional models and other objects, and now expanding her work in several different directions. Uh, she came by for an in-person conversation here in San Francisco. Thanks very much for talking. Thank you very much. You've been listening to The Work of Art. I'm Ted Weinstein. I hope you enjoyed this conversation and will listen to many more. Our theme music is by Mental99 and used with their kind permission. Production of Ted Weinstein Literary Management. This has been The Work of Art. <laughs>